This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, we're happy to sit down with Brian McCabe of Georgetown University. Brian's work sits at the intersection of inequality in politics and urban planning. And he's the author of No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership with Oxford University Press. And now he's working on housing vouchers and the way the public authorities administer voucher programs. We're going to talk about home ownership and its role in shaping people's fortunes and the country. You're not going to want to miss this. So a few months ago, we spoke about the so-called squared hoax in which uh, three scholars sent, uh, sent a bunch of hoax articles to like the studies journals and got how many? Something like seven publications out of it? Something like that. In any case, the hoax got major national attention. It was certainly discussion worthy. Uh, it angered people who said that it wasted reviewers time and it capitalized on the trust that we place in each other when we're developing our literatures, but others loved it, right? They saw it as exposing unrigorous work in the academy. So in any case, it turns out that only one of the three authors of this hoax uh, had a faculty position. I think his name, I, don't, I, I hope I don't pronounce this wrong, Peter Boghossian? I, I think he'd pronounce it Boghossian. Uh, Boghossian, I think. Boghossian, okay. Boghossian, a philosopher from Portland State University. And now Professor Bogosian has had a professional misconduct charge levied against him for the hoax because he didn't go to IRB, is my understanding. So uh, what's your take on this story? Uh, is this researcher misconduct or uh, the use of IRB as a means of retaliation? What's your What was your reaction to this story? Well, well my... Oh, go ahead. Oh. Uh, my reaction to the story was, you know, I felt like I I couldn't make uh, I couldn't make a call on it mm. because I don't know if he and his you know his co his co's thought of this as actually research that was systematic mm. or you know was this just for fun? Mm -hmm. And it seems as though and it seems as though I mean I've never heard heard them refer to it as fun. But I, I, you know, but I have heard but them. You didn't watch their YouTube video when yeah. they're laughing the rest. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I didn't watch that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know. Like, intent, I think, is, um, I think it's very necessary to know. Mm. Um, because if they weren't approaching this, like, like research, the way that we think of research, I really don't see what IRB has, has to do with this. Right. Well, okay, so... This is like this weird Aristotelian thing about um, IRB, where I can do whatever I want until it's research, and then I have to go fill out, you know, a bunch of paperwork and wait a month before I can do it. So yeah. if I want to, um, you know, have a conversation with you because we're old friends from graduate school, that's that's nobody's business but you and I. Mm -hmm. And if I want to have a conversation with you because it's a qualitative interview that's going to go in my next book, mm. then I need to, you know, write up an idea of what kind of questions I'm going to ask. I need to talk about the scientific impact. I need to talk about if you're a member of a vulnerable population. I'm going to talk about if there's, you know, uh, compensation. I'm going to talk about what you're going to get out of the study. I'm going to talk about if your arm suddenly falls off during the study. What are the protocols? You know, mm -hmm. all the stuff. And then I'm going to need to submit it to IRB, and I'm going to need to wait for need to wait a week. And then they'll say, "What if Leslie Hinkson is a minor?" And I'm going to say, "I know her; she's in her 40s." And they're like, "Yeah, but what if? How are you going to verify that?" And I'm going to have to go back. And you know, first of all, a week. You're lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So, but 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 all that hinges on whether it's just a conversation because we're old friends from grad school, mm -hmm. or whether it's for research. So we have this kind of ridiculous thing where, for research purposes. You have to do all these hoops. And and it's kind of ridiculous to me because uh, why does it matter that much whether it's research or not? I mean, I understand that that's the rule. Right. You know, uh, and um, but it does seem somewhat absurd that if they're writing it for Aereo and Quillette and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and YouTube, then and that's not research, then they don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're doing it for um ASR, that would be research, right. and they would have to go through IRB. It's it's a little bit ridiculous. 
Brian, what's your take? Oh, sorry. Go, Gabe. Finish up. No, no, I was done. No, I mean, I actually, I actually think in some ways the question is a lot more simple than it's been laid out, right? So IRB is meant to protect human subjects, or at least, right, that's the stated purpose of IRB. It's probably actually meant to protect universities against getting sued, but the stated totally. is to protect human subjects. And at the end of the day, the truth is that in this sort of scam that these guys ran, right, there are no human subjects because there's no actual research. So so nobody needed to be protected and therefore, right, there sort of needs to be no IRB approval. I mean, I think that the research misconduct allegation is true. I don't, I can't imagine the situation where, uh, you know, this is, this is for fun, right? This is obviously uh, to prove a point, to prove a point that they think is true. Um, and I think that there are other ways to sanction them, right? Professional misconduct doesn't have to be just through sort of right. research boards. Um, so, so that's, you know, sort of my take is it's clear professional misconduct, but it's not clear that it's a violation of IRB because it actually doesn't involve any human subjects in the but it does, Brian. Well, who, who does it involve? Well, I mean, as much as we might despise them, are not the editors of journals human beings? Well, <laughs> and, and the peer reviewers. That's, that's, that's an, open, an open question, but uh, <laughs> no. But but I mean, actually, I think if you take that argument to, to sort of the next step, does that mean that every time I'm asked to review an article in the AJS, I have to get IRB approval because I'm you know, interacting with an editor of a journal and, you know, and, and a, the writer. No, no, no. The idea would be that you'd have to get, so, I mean, audit, this, I mean, this is one of the things is that when the first wave of the controversy about this thing, people were like, oh, it's so unethical to deceive people. Mm-hmm. And then people were pointing out that in some ways, this is just an audit study. Yeah. And people love audit studies. Right. But the reason they love audit studies is because A, it's proving a point that we're sympathetic to, which is that there's various forms of discrimination that exist and we need to worry about them. And B, it's wasting the time of people we don't care about that much, which is HR managers <laughs> or small business people. Whereas this is making a point we are unsympathetic to, which is that there's bullshit in academia that should be weeded out. Mm-hmm. And B, it's wasting the time of people we are sympathetic to, which is fellow academics. Mm-hmm. So, but in a purely structural perspective, this is just an audit experiment. And audit experiments are very obviously uh, research involving research subjects. Um, well, but the, it's, not, it's not really yeah. just an audit study because it doesn't rise to the level of what we would expect of an audit study, right? An audit sends out um, you know, thousands of resumes. Yeah, the sample size is smaller. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily as systematic of a design. But you no, know, it, it's not like they they send it out to every third listing in monster.com between this week and that week, right. you know. And and even, you know, had they gotten IRB approval to do this so-called audit study, right? It doesn't rise to the level of uh, you know, scientific. It doesn't have scientific merit and not because of the subject, but because you send out 20 fake articles uh, try to get them published, right? That that's not really uh, an audit study. You know, I think it's ironic that we're talking about, you know, whether it's low quality research when the point of the study (laughs) was to demonstrate that there's substantial parts of academia that uh, you can be very successful with extremely low quality research. Right. Right. So my experience in dealing with IRB on things on the line, for example, with this podcast is the standard is, is are you trying to develop generalized propositions uh, about, you know, people's behavior? Are you trying to develop theories like scholastic theories that generalize? And uh, and, and I, they were, I guess they, they were trying to generalize a systematic knowledge that certain subfields of academia are full of shit. I guess so. Although, I mean, yeah, I guess in a way you could see it as that. I also see it, though, as a stunt, like they weren't trying to assess rejection rates. They were trying to get a paper into a journal to embarrass the journal. Well, so there wasn't it, an assessment it, it, there. It was like a, that's That's a true, but they also want to have it both ways and that they have in multiple occasions referred to this as an experiment. Mm. And at the time, I mean, this is one of those things where it's like people change their arguments, where people who are uh, unsympathetic to them would say, oh, it's not an experiment because there's not a control or because it's not well-designed or whatever. Mm. And now the shoe's on the other foot. <laughs> and yeah. their position has to be, it's not an experiment. It was just a prank. And then the people who don't like them has to say it was an experiment yeah. <laughs> you know, or say that it counts as research. You know, So it's completely opportunistic uh, on both sides to say whether it's research or not. But I, I think it was very clearly aimed at developing. Um, and I'm doing my best to bracket my opinions on the merits. And I'm basically sympathetic to their prank slash experiment because I do 
basically hate most of cultural studies and want to see it called out as bullshit. Um, but I, I'm, I, I do think that they were trying to develop a general point of uh, understanding, at least as much as many things that are considered research. So here's here's another aspect of it, because there's two angles to research misconduct. There's sort of the legalistic definition where we're worried about like the university's conformity to government regulation. And then there's like the spirit of IRB, like what IRB is intended to do. And I was having a very interesting discussion with a Canadian scholar who was talking to me about human subject standards in Canada as opposed to the US. And I, if I'm not if I'm mistaken, somebody please correct me on Twitter. But I think in Canada, if you study people in the course of their job, like you study people's behavior when they're working, they're not human subjects, like in terms of their job. So you can do sort of employee assessments of their normal course of work. If I'm not mistaken, somebody can correct me on this. That That's similar to the uh, standard in the Susan Fisk report but um, that hasn't been implemented yet. Hmm. So what you're describing as the Canadian standard is what, God willing, will soon be the American standard, but it kind of hasn't worked its way through yet, but it's coming down the yeah. pike. A couple of years ago, Susan Fisk of Princeton um, wrote a report basically saying, wait, is she at Princeton or Penn? Anyway, so um, somewhere in central Jersey. Uh, she lives in Princeton. Um, they... Uh, you know, her report said that uh, you should have, uh, where am I going with this? That, that we should have basically that standard that is already the case in Canada. Uh, like and, you can study people at work. Yeah, and you, and you don't have to, you know, fill out these ridic- ridiculous things that are based on uh, an essentially medical um, yeah. example of, of the presumption that if you ask someone what's your favorite color, that it might give them cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and I'm I'm mostly sympathetic to Bogosian just because I don't see journal anonymous journal reviewers and journal editors where like we don't even know who okayed this line. I don't see people's reputation as being you know subject to any serious risk. I think it was. Not- oh, are you kidding me? Yeah, I think, I think if that- you were the editor of one of these journals, if you knew that your colleague mm-hmm. now, fortunately, no. Uh, not every sociology journal desk rejected it, but no sociology journal gave them an R and R. Whereas most of the cultural studies journals did give them R and Rs or accepts. It was. So that, I think that's it. And it, that's what I wrote in the Weekly Standard, as I pointed out that this shows that sociology is great and cultural studies right. full of shit. But um, no, it's damaging to the discipline. But like, unless the it was. Oh, but I think it would be damaging to the individual editor if you knew that. Let's say your colleague. But if you knew. Let's say that, yeah, but you would know it was in every newspaper. It was in the Wall Street Journal. So let's say that you knew that you had a colleague who you sometimes have lunch with who's in the gender studies department. Mm -hmm. And this colleague edits a journal called, I don't know, uh, Studies in Queering the Body or Mm -hmm. something like that. And then they publish a study in there on how you can make men woke by uh, anally inserting a dildo. Yes. As as they did, let me just explain, as... The so-called hoax. Thing. That that was one of their studies. Yes, uh, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, just so we're clear, Gabriel's not just riffing here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not just telling you about my weekend. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm telling you about one of the um, the so-called words uh, hoaxes. Right. So um, the and you learn that your colleague had published this paper, mm-hmm. you would lose respect for this colleague, and, and you know uh, one of the critics of it. Um, of the paper uh, who was quoted in Inside Higher Ed described them as slandering uh, fields. Now, I don't think it's a slander because truth is a defense against slander. Right. Uh, Now, the the only case where I think they bordered on slander is in their original, they since have kind of incorporated my critique that actually sociology came across great. Mm. But in their original write-ups, they made it seem like sociologists were um, buying into their nonsense. Right. um, When actually there's a very clear distinction there. and so in that respect, you could say that they kind of slandered, say, sociological theory, where, for instance, um, they took the – David Scheiber, who's my um, grad student, mm-hmm. uh, was one of the reviewers. And I can say this because he said it publicly. Right. Um, and he, he, he thought – he actually texted me and said, like, I got this crazy paper to review. Yeah. And um, uh, 
And then he he reviewed it and he tried to give constructive criticism, but there was no way he was going to accept it. Yeah. And then they took the constructive criticism and uh, and then treated that as if someone was taking the paper seriously. Right. So I would say that they um, slandered anonymous reviewer two at um, sociological yeah. theory, who turns out to be David Shatter. But there's no one who's there's nobody who's personally going to be impacted by like that. Whoever's the editor in chief can say one of the editors did it. Whoever's editing the journal can say some other editor did it. Okay, so David was anonymous until he outed right. himself. Exactly. But uh, Mustafa Amabier's not. Like, like that. That well, was he the one who ultimately okayed the journal or the articles? Well, he was the one who decided to send it out for review instead of desk rejecting it. So this could, you know, to some incremental extent, this would have hurt Amabier's reputation that he um, sent it out for review instead of desk rejecting it. I guess I don't. Uh, although, I mean, I don't know, like. In well, some I, way, yeah. Yeah, in ahead. some ways, I kind of feel like that uh, that desk reject thing. You know, I I could see where an editor would be like, you know what, this is peer review, not yeah. editor review. So I I'll send it out, and you know, I might think this is BS. Let's see what the young folks say. Huh. Yeah, you know, I I don't think anybody I I don't think anybody's career is going to be materially damaged by it. So I'm. Maybe there are disciplines or like uh, that are going to be damaged by, it, and certainly journals. But individually, I don't think anybody's going to pay the price, and the price that they pay, I don't feel terribly for them because, like, those because they publish crap. Well, yeah, you know. So, <laughs> well, actually, I, I do have another point I want to make, which is let's say that they did this the right way. So let's say that they went out there and now. Um, the, the t- Lindsay and uh, Pluckrose are not affiliated with universities, although they are trained scholars. Um, but uh, um, yeah. mm-hmm. so, so they, they wouldn't have had an IRB to go to. Mm-hmm. But let's say that um, Bogosian had gone to the Portland State IRB and filed it. Um, I don't think it would have been possible. And I don't think that's because it is an unethical study. I think I don't see anything less ethical about this study than your average audit study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know somebody could say like, well, you know, when somebody reviews a resume where you're, um, you're comparing one resume with a college application, with a college degree and three years of experience, and it says uh, Everett Adams on it versus another resume that has, you know, a college degree in MA and four years of experience, and it says uh, Tanisha Washington on it, you know, you're, you're, you're still wasting people's time. I, I, I get, but you're wasting five minutes of time versus ten hours of time. I get right. that, but I still fundamentally don't see th- this as qualitatively different from an audit study. I see this as basically an audit study. So let's say that they did the thing that you know um, the late Diva Pager would have had to do, or my next door neighbor Michael Gaddis would have had to do, of going through um, IRB to do a um, an audit study. Mm-hmm. And I think you simply couldn't have done it. Because and for two reasons, uh, number not because you shouldn't. Like if I was on the IRB, I would say I'm curious to see what happens. Let's do this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but and then you know send the debriefing email and everything like that. But um, you know, but fundamentally, you can do it the same way you can do any other important study that involves deception. And honestly, you know, for all the talk about like this is low value research, I think this is much more important. Uh, we learned much more from the study than we learned from most studies. Oh like, yeah, the average like. This is, is, I would say we actually learn more from the study than, say, my last ASR. And it's not like I'm not. We've talked about it three episodes. Like it's, yeah, exactly. There's plenty of fodder for reflection with this. Uh, exactly. With this yeah, it taught us a lot about academia and how it works. Like, it, th- this is a successful study. Yes. Um, so, um, now, the reason I think you can do it is that I think most IRBs would say you can't do it. And I think most IRBs would say, it's unethical, and I don't think they have a good reason for saying it's unethical, or certainly that's any more eth- unethical than any other audit study. Um, and um, and then I also think that even if they did say it's ethical, somebody would leak it. Oh, there's no question. It's a small community, and the first debrief you gave that said I'm sending bullshit papers to, you know, this and this studies discipline, like word would spread immediately. And yeah, so I think there's a real issue here. And I'm torn by this because in principle, I think that studies that involved, so I generally think that most things should be exempt from IRB. Mm -hmm. And that if I take you out for a cup of coffee and I talk to you, especially if I'm keeping you anonymous, I should not have to go through IRB for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think studies that involve deception, 
actually should involve IRB. Like that, that's actually something where I think, you know, should be kind of a hard and fast line of like, then it has to go through IRB. It, it probably get accepted, but you should have to go through IRB for something that involves deception. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like this is the kind of thing where it would lead to effectively an abuse of power on the part of IRB's part, where they think because this attacks our people and it inconveniences our people mm-hmm. and it shows a point that we don't like, um, they might effectively use the pressure point of IRB to either deny the study or to leak the intentions of the study, which is effectively the same thing. Whereas they wouldn't do that if it's demonstrating a point they like, which is that there's labor market discrimination um, against people who they don't care about, which is, say, HR managers. So I got a banter item, which is that um, on uh, Twitter yesterday, um, uh, Tina Fetner and Daniel Larson, a few other people, were talking about, um, apologies to anybody, I forgot, um, were talking about that, you know, it kind of sucks that uh, the ASA submission process comes at the second week of January, first, second week of January. I'm old enough to remember, you guys are, well, we all went to grad school together, we're all the same age. Uh, we're all old enough to remember when there was the kind of uh, annual crashing of the server, which in effect was a line <laughs> 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 extension. But, you know, I guess now they discovered Amazon cloud computing. <laughs> you know, they can, they can, but, you know, it used to always be like, you know, it's due January 7th and the server would crash every January 7th. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and nobody would learn their lesson the next year. Right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you didn't have to, right? Because you knew that there would be an extension. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, but anyway, you know, you have this nine-month lead time because um, it's always the second or third week of August mm. um, for before ASA, and it's and it's like that's a really long time, especially given that you have the whole. Um, paper. Right. And, you know, sometimes people have said like, well, maybe we should have it be that it's like a four month lead time and you submit the whole paper. Then the thing that gets back to you is like, well, it takes, you know, a month and a half to put the schedule together once you have the papers. And it takes, you know, you know, two months to put together a panel because that's a lot of peer review. And I've done it multiple times. It actually is a tremendous peer review effort to go through, you know, a hundred paper submissions and put together a couple of panels. Good Lord. Um, yeah, it's a huge amount of work. Um, and and if somebody told me I had a week to do it, I'd say no way, you know. <laughs> but um, so the real answer to speed it up is to make it less work. And the way to make it less work for both the uh, submitters and the peer reviewers is to make it as just an extended abstract mm-hmm. rather than a full paper or at least half a paper because twenty pages is short by sociology standards. Um, and a lot of disciplines do this, and it generally works for them, right? You an extended abstract, right, which is to say basically. Uh, about 500 words um, Mm -hmm. is a very common way to do uh, conference submissions. Well, Uh, I I did computational social science, uh, you know, and I submitted a, um, uh, an extended abstract. And then the other thing, which I'd like to talk about a little later is that I got in as a poster Mm. and I went to the conference because it was a poster at ASA. That would have been a round table and I wouldn't have gone. But, But let's talk about the extended abstracts first. Right. Okay, so here's the thing. So I I know, I mean, I have gone through that review process myself um, for both SSSP and for ASA. And, and I, you're right, you know, it's a lot of work. Um, but at the same time, if you, I, I kind of, I always thought that part of this was just this weeding out process where they were like, you know what, if we, if we if we allow extended abstracts, instead of getting 115 submissions, mm-hmm. we're going to get 2,000 submissions. I mean, I, I'm totally exaggerating. Really? I feel like to a first approximation, you submit a paper. Like, I'm not going to submit two papers. I'm going to submit one paper to ASA most years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if it's extended abstracts, I'm not going to submit five extended abstracts. I'm, gonna, I'm still going to submit one. Extended I know, but I know, but how many people will have a completed paper? That's what I'm saying. I know you're not going to you're not going to uh, submit multiples. What I'm saying is more people will be able to submit an extended abstract by that deadline than would be able to submit a, a completed paper. So maybe I would submit 
a paper or an abstract every year instead of submitting a extended ab, instead of submitting a paper every other year. Huh. Well, it the the conference itself would uh, be more like the ESS, I guess, right? It would change the, I think, the tenor of the presentations, and also, like, let's be honest, you could have that deadline in April, and everybody would just wait till mid March, <laughs> right? And they'd be like, "Oh, why is it April? I just need it till May." Like we've been on the other, we've all been on the other side of deadlines, like waiting for them and setting them. And almost invariably, the people who you set it for feel like they could use just an extra two weeks, regardless of where you set it. I mean, so, so my sense is that, you know, in some ways, what happens is, so I did a panel last year, uh, a housing panel, and two of the five papers that I ultimately accepted onto the panel came out in published form around the same time as the ASA. So, you know, what that meant was that- So they were able to incorporate a lot of feedback in uh, the-, the, uh, co- the uh, Typesetting phase, right? <laughs> right. That's just in the typesetting phase. Mm. But I mean, it sort of raised this question for for me about sort of what the purpose of presenting at the ASA is, right? So, is it to do um, some sort of paper that's in progress and get that feedback? Mm. Um, and if that's the case, then sort of like late stage final papers, uh, right, should not be submitted. Mm. Um, but or, or is it just to sort of alert the sociological community to the work that you're doing? Um, by sort of having you stand up there and present something that's that's almost done. I mean, I, I go to APAM every year to the policy public policy conference, mm-hmm. and um, I mean they have a they have a sort of a different problem. It's extended abstracts, and they put panels together. Groups of people submit panels, right? Which is a you know, classic in lots of other disciplines too, where you can get you know three or four or five of your colleagues, friends you know, mm-hmm. people in your social network and submit an actual panel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in some ways it works a lot better because you get these sort of very coherent panels. Uh, I find that at ASA quite often you have papers that right, sort of don't seem to fit together and they're sort of, you know, yeah. broadly stuck under the category of welfare states or broadly stuck under poverty, but they don't, they don't have a lot of relationship to mm-hmm. each other. Whereas APAM, you get panels that actually can deal really nicely with each other. I mean, the, the flip side of that is you get this sort of reproduction of the same scholars every right. year that a couple people are finding their friends. And then, you know, I've been on a housing panel for the last four years with the same, some combination of the same 10 people. So it doesn't always create an opportunity to be involved in it unless you're sort of already in the club. Um, but I think it's an alternative that solves a bunch of problems of, of the ASA. Uh, you know what? It's like just to, okay to follow up on that. You know this idea about panels and getting feedback. You know what is up? Like what is up with sessions where there's supposedly a discussant, but like no one gives you feedback on the panel, gives you any feedback on your work, and they just open it up for the audience. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. If you are a discussant, what is your job? I hate discussants. Well, they know that that the paper is already about to be published, so yeah. <laughs> Just well, also, I mean, the, the problem with being a discussant is you have these papers that were just the five best papers on race or the five best papers on housing or the five best papers on personal finance or whatever, but they have nothing to do with each other other than the topic. Mm-hmm. And kind of the genre conventions of being a discussant is you have to draw out a common theme mm-hmm. and it's incredibly contrived. It's inevitably the most boring part of the uh, talk. So right. I, I would I would add that to my list of, you know, once I made dictator for life of ASA. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, no discussants. Well, Gabriel, uh, I have yeah. to totally disagree with you on that okay. uh, because I have been to I have been to sessions where there have been masterful discussants who have been able mm. to draw to, to draw you know like things in common commonalities with the papers you know while also giving meaningful feedback and weaving it all together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a I mean, it's a skill, right? And I actually think then a lot of people who sign up to be discussants uh, are just really crappy at it. Um, well, also, you, you don't always sign up. Like every time the ASA rolls through New York, you, you're like, <laughs> will you please be discussing on these four panels? Uh, you know, Because a keyword on one of your papers matches one of the papers on the panel. So it's like it's not everybody who is a discussant was clamoring for it. You know what I mean? Although you should say no if you're not clamoring for it. Yeah. Let's be sure. But also, like, what's the function of it? I mean, this it, what's the function of these ASA meetings? Is it a public showcase of research that's already been done? Because if that's the case, it's a very, very inefficient way of communicating new research. Like, the Internet's here. We don't all have to gather and deliver it orally. Like, uh, 
you know, you could be interviewed. It, it, well, the, the roundtables are the extreme of this. Nobody sees the roundtable. The only purpose of the roundtable is so that you can tell your university's comptroller or whatever they're called that you appeared on the conference program. So you can pay for a vacation where you get to visit your friends from grad school out of your research budget. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I think don't we're think so. being. I come on. Yeah. <laughs> a little more positive about this. We yeah. might. You, you do best. realize to whom you're speaking, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> my best experience at the ASA, actually, in in a decade of going, was on a roundtable, and I, I will say, you know, I had that one experience, and then I've never done a roundtable since. But but I remember it was in San Francisco, like 2009, and I sat down, and there were. Two other people at that table, they happened to be Sarah Cowan and Dave Brady, and we had the best yeah. conversation for an hour, right, mm-hmm. that, that I've ever had at ASA about sort of academic work. So, you know, that's, I'm sure, the exception more so than the rule, but it was a, a sort of really enlightening experience as a fourth-year grad student to, mm-hmm. to have that. So, you know, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then the roundtable comes through. It's good for junior scholars, I think. Well, you know, yeah. first of all, we already did a section on on roundtables versus posters, Uh because I've, I've been... Oh, okay. So we don't need to go back to that yet. <laughs> we don't need to go too back. Like, I think we pretty much fleshed out our views. But like, yeah, I think they're they're good. The hit rate's lower. Most of them aren't good. But they still... I mean, look, the hit rate's not that high on panel presentations. The hit rate's <laughs> not that high on main stage plenary sessions, quite candidly, right? Yeah. Like, you you attend 20 presentations and you get like three or four. Oh, plenary, sta- plenary sessions suck. Generally. I mean, it's almost part of the nature of them. <laughs> they need headliners. And now we turn to Brian McCabe of Georgetown University. Brian authored No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership with Oxford University Press. It's a book that talks about home ownership and its role in Americans' personal economic fortunes and its central role in American society. It's a fascinating topic and a pleasure to meet you. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So home ownership is a big thing in America. And I thought maybe you could get us started by like painting us a picture of how housing and home ownership specifically shapes people's uh, personal fortunes. Like how important is home ownership in the big picture of, you know, how well people do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I am um, that I talk about in the beginning of the book is when you ask people um about sort of what constitutes the American dream, right? Sending your kids off to college, doing better than your parents did, um, sort of climbing the social ladder. Um, Owning a home continues to be sort of at the very, very top of that list. Um, And what was sort of striking to me, I wrote uh, the beginning of this book kind of on the the heels of the housing crisis, um, is that that commitment to homeownership sort of very... didn't dip very much. It did not dip very much, right? So there was this sort of brief period where homeownership seemed a little bit less important, um, but it sort of rebounded very quickly to continue to be sort of one of the things that um, Americans hold dear. And so that's sort of kind of how I got started in the book, thinking about um, the different reasons that people want to buy a home, right? And Mm -hmm. so the, the kind of one that we go back to the most is the the promise of building wealth through home ownership. But there are a lot of other reasons when you talk to people about why they want to own a home, um, about what they say, right? So they talk about um, having a place that's theirs, the security of home ownership, right? The, the sort of um, uh, the idea of building communities through home ownership, of staying in a place for a long time. Um, so it's not just the the kind of financial side of home ownership that's important to people, but it's all these other um, kind of aspects of it. And in Thinking about home ownership as a sociologist, part of what I wanted to do was right, kind of wrestle this idea away from economists. I feel like economists um, have been the, the the sort of primary researchers on home ownership to the mm-hmm. degree that we think of this as right, mostly about building wealth, mm-hmm. um, kind of ceded control to the economists. In the book, I wanted to kind of bring some other sociological ideas about strengthening communities and about civic engagement and some of the other meaning around home ownership back. So, so what do you get for owning a home? Uh, well, I own a condo and it's an extraordinary headache. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, what, what do you get? So, so I think that there are financial returns on it. Right. And, and I say in the book, um, the kind of consensus is that if you have a, um, a good mortgage in a good neighborhood and you hold on to it for a long, for a long time, right. Homeownership still is one of the best wealth building tools that we have. Um, but you get a lot of other things from it too. I think people get a sense of security, um, kind of physical, physical security, right. A place that they often feel safe. Um, there's a, I think a really important social status associated with it, right. This idea that we sort of see homeowners as 
people that have succeeded, that have done well, that are, you know, independent, that sort of made it. So um, there's that part of it. Um, there are some other benefits that I don't talk about in the book, but benefits, um, health benefits associated with home ownership, sort of mental health benefits, um, right? Sort of knowing that your your payments are not going to change month to month, they're not going to change very much month to month. So, so I think that there are still a lot of benefits that individuals do see from from home ownership. In uh, I've I've done a little bit of work on home ownership, and one thing that struck me uh, in, in doing my book was uh, how. Home ownership is sort of like the ticket to accessing the neighborhoods with good schools and the neighborhoods, you know, with quality public services and good yeah. hospitals and libraries. Like in America, these communities tend to do their best to restrict cheap rental housing. And, yeah. uh, and so some of owning a home is just being able to get into non-distressed communities. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's actually the, the, one of the central points of the book, right, is to say that we tend to think of homeowners as um, sort of being more involved in their communities, right? They're better citizens. They vote more often. They volunteer more often. They attend, you know, PTA meetings and they do volunteer work and they're kind of more active citizens. Mm -hmm. But what I want to do, what I do in the book is to, to sort of think about why that's the case, right? What are they protecting? And I argue that, you know, some of this is just about residential stability. Homeowners are in um, a place for a longer time and sort of stability leads to greater involvement in communities. But some of this, of course, is about protecting property values, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when a homeowner is working to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, a land use they don't want is in their neighborhood, when they're working to oppose affordable housing developments, right, that kind of stuff that shows up when we measure community engagement and political participation, right, that stuff's also you know, not always good for a community or not always good for a community as a whole. Um, and so that's part of what I want to do in the, the book is to say that um, homeowners do tend to be more involved in their communities than renters, but there are right often very negative consequences of this kind of exclusionary politics of being involved as a way to keep other people out of your neighborhood. Well, so one of the things I would say about, I say about that, and so first of all, I want to say I did read the book, really loved it, um, as you know, um, but I will say that I, I really do think that one of the reasons why homeowners are more involved than renters is because that's how the system is set up, right? Um, and I think very often renters are actually made to feel as though they don't have as much of a say, right? right? Um, and so if that's how the system is, is set up, right, then, you know, what can be done? What kinds of policies can you implement to try and sort of like undo that kind of hierarchy that exists, like between renters and homeowners in certain spaces? That's number one. Um, and number two, um, I actually think that there are some, you know, in, in some places, even in suburbia, like Montgomery County, where I live um, in, in Maryland, where you know, they're build, totally building up the downtown, yeah. right? Um, and they're building these luxury apartment buildings. Well, Montgomery County has a provision that says, well, if you are building uh, a residential space that has more than X number of units, you need to set aside this many units, right, um, as affordable housing. Right. And number one, that's one of the ways in which you get... Um, lower income, and that includes, you know, poverty level, working class, and also lower middle class um, residents to move into a high rent, if you will, district, right, that does have really good schools, that does have great services, um, while also, you know, helping to alleviate any kind of fear that many of the residents, um, even in such a quote-unquote liberal uh, county, um, that they they will be overrun by, you know, the have-nots. Yeah. Oh, come on. The, the, the problem with that is that it, it just raises the costs. And so um, perversely inclusive uh, zoning, you know, can actually lead to less construction. Because if you say, you know, you can only... Not in Bethesda. Well, maybe in <laughs> Bethesda, because you see such a hot market. But in general... Um, if you say half the units have to be reserved or a third of the units have to be reserved for uh, non-market rate housing, you're effectively driving up the cost of, you know, the, the profitable units, meaning that you can only build super luxury units. Um, and, you know, you arguably would get, I, I know housing people who say, 
and you know maybe Brian disagrees with this, but uh, or maybe it's just a different skill set that would be required for this analysis. But I know housing people who say that you be you would get more construction with uh, if you just didn't have the um, the requirements for inclusive zoning. And it's probably true that the new construction would mostly be luxury housing, but it would be cheaper luxury housing. It would be three thousand dollars a month for a two bedroom instead of four thousand dollars a month for a bedroom new bedroom, which is what new construction costs in Los Angeles. Um, and also through housing filtering, you would end up getting the uh, socioeconomic mix anyway. So for instance, if they didn't have those types of requirements, um, I would probably move into new construction and pay $3,000 a month. And then some poorer person would move into my apartment. And so you'd still have more economic diversity uh, and lower rents. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't know. So, no, so Gabriel, I totally get your point. Um, I think one of one of the big takeaway points from what you said um, initially, at least, is that you know different policies actually work better like in different places. So you need to be really careful about like thinking about having these blanket policies. And then, but also number two, I think part of the rationale for doing this isn't. I, I mean, it's to ensure that that low income people aren't segregated perpetually from everyone else. So, I mean, if Well, it wouldn't be perpetually. You'd get filtering. It may in the short run you might, but once the construction gets to be a few years old, it you know, the, the it would be less valuable and then you would get housing filtering and you'd have more of a So a just mix. For, for background, filtering is a process where it's a vacancy chain for apartments. So yeah, so like when somebody builds a really nice apartment, the, the, the new apartments go to rich people because when you build a new apartment, it only costs an extra couple thousand dollars to put in marble countertops and that kind of shit. That means you can double the rent. <laughs> and then, um, and so it's way worth it to make a luxury. It, it only costs like I don't know ten percent more to make a luxury apartment than it does to make a non-luxury mm-hmm. apartment. So of course you're going to make a luxury apartment because you can charge twice as much and, and the construction costs are marginally you know, higher. Nothing. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, and and so to first approximation, all new construction is luxury construction. But you know, after a building is 20 years old, it's not that luxurious anymore. It's a little bit out of fashion. It's starting to get worn down. The paint looks like shit. Right. So um, pass it down to the pros. you know that's not. What, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't, exactly. Oh yeah. my god, Brian. <laughs> sorry, we digress. <laughs> We digress Sorry, there. Brian, <laughs> I almost had to run over to your office, Leslie. <laughs> the mic. No, I mean, I think, you know, filtering happens in a world of economists, right? Where, um, where we think outside of constraints, right? So filtering with like, like if you think of trading in your car after three years, right? For you make a yeah. lot more money now, you want a new car. The cost of trading in your car is extremely low, right? You're, you, you don't have a social network around your car. Your church isn't in the neighborhood where your car is, right? So, so people actually don't sort of filter housing in the way that um, that we think of it as this sort of easy commodity where you just make a little bit more money and you get a better house. And a couple of years later, you make a little more money and you get a bigger house, right? That that's it's just sort of you, you can still keep all those Tibu goods if you just move within the same neighborhood. Well, but, <laughs> right, but there's but there's cost of doing that too. Uh, and you know, housing is so spatially segregated. That right, if you want to upgrade from your, you know, from one apartment to, to the next, right, you often can't just do it in the same neighborhood with the, the same sort of walkable things. I mean, I think you you do make a good point about the supply constraints, right? So what we mm-hmm. want to do and what people that sort of advocate for um, uh, sort of this is just a supply problem is we need to lift supply constraints that limit the amount of housing construction that's happening. So we're working on a project in DC, sort of DC Metro, looking though at where it is that new housing construction is happening. And what's fascinating about it, and this is the story of, you know, kind of all metros right now is it's happening in the exurbs, right? In places that are really, really um, sort of far away from from the central city. Um, I think, you know, the Bethesda example is really interesting to me because I think there's also this sort of misnomer, and, and I talk about it a bit in the book, about what affordable housing actually means, right? Mm-hmm. So in Bethesda, right, they're probably using tax credit dollars to, to, to build... Um, Right to build LIHTC units, affordable units in these um, mixed-income developments, and those are probably geared at people making sixty percent of the median income. Right, so in DC, kind of DC Metro, the median income is one hundred and ten thousand dollars. So sixty percent is you know sixty-five thousand dollars. So so we're not actually talking about housing 
like poor families or low income yeah. families, or even like, like we're basically talking about like very middle income families. It's um, above the yeah. national median. Well, so the one thing I will say about that, Brian, and this is again, just the Montgomery County example, yeah. is that you're totally right. The vast majority of the people who end up actually applying for these house, for, for these units, right, actually are right where it is you're saying. But I also know people who make significantly less money than that, who also have, who were able to secure spaces in these luxury buildings. Right. But they're, but they're, the rents in those buildings are going to be set so that somebody making $65,000 doesn't have to pay more than a third of their income, 30% of their income. So Mm -hmm. it is true that people that make less money can get those units, but at a rent, that's affordable to somebody making $65,000, right? So they're cost burdened because they're living in this unit that was actually you know, built and financed for a wealthier family than, than them. I mean, this is the, the sort of fundamental problem with our low-income housing policy is we're actually not building housing for the very, very bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've taken the, the state almost entirely out of it, turned it over exclusively to the market, and there's no sort of financial, right? There, there's no financial way to build housing for, for somebody making $20,000. No, but you but you don't build housing for poor people. You build housing for rich and middle class people, and then eventually it degrades, and then the salvage value is housing for poor well, people. Well, that's the American way. That's not the only possible yeah, system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's not the American way. The American way is you don't build housing at all. <laughs> if, if there was an American way, that would be the American way. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian, so one of the th- one, like one of the things um, that I I thought your book made very clear to um, to people who aren't um, who 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 don't have uh, any knowledge of the ways in which government policies have actually led to number one, not just encouraging own, uh, home ownership, but also um, limiting like sort of the prospects of home ownership for certain types of people. Um, and I was wondering if you'd want to talk about that a yeah, little totally. bit. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a chapter in the book that's about the mortgage interest deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we talk about the subsidies that um, that we give to, to housing in the U.S., right, we talk about housing vouchers and tax credits, um, but the mortgage interest deduction is, right, one of the largest deductions um, in the federal tax code, right, goes exclusively to homeowners, obviously, but not just to homeowners, to uh, homeowners that itemize their deductions, right? So um, it goes to kind of upper middle class and upper class homeowners. And I have some graphs in the book that just sort of show how unequal um, the deduction is. Should you and, still be and, using the present tense? What's that? Should you yeah. still be using the present tense? Oh yeah, I mean the the uh, the change in the the change in deductible income was right. It's from million dollar mortgages to seven hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgages. I mean it's very. Um, yeah, we should still be using the present tense. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the standard and the standard deduction went up, right? So few. No, but I mean, well, in Los Angeles, I'd like you to show me a place that I could get for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. You make a great realtor if you could find one for me. <laughs> right, right. So I, I, you know, and and then on top of that, you know, um, the state and local tax deduction went away. So. I mean, to the extent that housing prices are especially rising uh, in uh, basically blue states, uh, well, big cities and blue states, uh, you know, we should eventually see some change from the uh, last year's tax bill because some of those subsidies have been clawed back incrementally. I mean, I I agree with you that there's still big subsidies for housing in our tax policy, but uh, not quite as bad as two years ago. Well, but I mean, even even if that's the case, so I agree with you, not quite as bad as two years ago. I mean, to, to the, the federal government subsidized spends $100 billion subsidizing uh, home mortgages mm-hmm. last year, um, $20 billion on the entire housing choice voucher program, right? The sort of primary tool that we have for assisting low-income housing. So, so you're right to say that, you know, 2019 may be, may be uh, better, for 28, better than 2018, but it's still mm-hmm. extraordinary compared to the amount of money that we spend on right, low-income rental programs, right? Yeah. Um, and these are, you know, and, and homeowners and homeowners making a substantial amount of money, those of us that itemize our, our taxes, right? We're, we're sort of the least in need of housing subsidy uh, right. and we're the primary beneficiary of it. So I think the, the principle still stands, even if, right, they've been sort of slightly clawed back. Oh, I, uh, I agree with you completely that mortgage interest deduction is still a middle-class entitlement. And in general, a lot of middle-class entitlements um, dwarf transfers to the poor. But sure. I, I am saying that there has been some improvement on that. 
absolutely some some marginal improvement but i think i mean i think sure agree the other thing to 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 put it in right is not only is like so it's right it's costly it's really expensive to the federal government it's regressive it doesn't actually help sort of poor families for sure or even middle class families on the margins of home ownership right so unless you itemize your 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 deductions right you're not going to be able to take it so it's not the kind of tool that even incentivizes people that are almost able to buy a home. Now I would I would contend that that might not be the best goal of housing policy anyway, mm-hmm. but but if that if we want that to be the goal of housing policy, if we want to encourage people to own their own homes, right? The mortgage interest deduction is sort of not even good for that. And then you sort of add on to it, I think the argument from the book, which is that um, it's sort of encouraging people in their communities to sort of right clamp down and protect their property values uh, sort of at all costs and, and sort of the cost of it is right, more inclusive communities. So Brian, so, you know, in the perfect world, in the universe that is totally orchestrated by by Brian McCabe, yeah. um, what, yeah. and, you know, and specifically in uh, an urban American universe, right. uh, what, po- like, what would be your primary mechanisms for, uh, not even for, I wouldn't even say for ensuring home ownership. I would basically say for ensuring uh, people having a home. Yeah. Or, or how about, well, just well-being, like people, people's overall well-being. Well, we're talking about housing here, dude. Well, yeah, but housing <laughs> is not just the space you live in. Like in America, it's a vehicle for accessing other essential services. Right. And like, it's not just right. about living indoors. It's true. There's a lot that yeah, you're true. buying a lot more than just a, a space to live when you buy a house. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I think that there are ways to think about sort of decoupling the idea of home ownership from lots of the benefits that go with it, right? Yeah. So, so we might think that there are benefits to residential stability, right? The the ability to stay in a neighborhood that you know and near the services that are important to you and in your social networks, right? And so we can imagine even for low-income renters or renters in a city like Los Angeles, right, that are being displaced as neighborhoods change and gentrify and they can't afford those rents, mm-hmm. right? We can imagine... Um, uh, some sort of subsidy, like a gentrification subsidy or voucher-like subsidy that enables us to sort of decouple the idea um, of like residential stability and and subsidize that, right? So we could do that. Right. I think that there are some other models of home ownership that are not the kind of standard, um, you know, like buy a house in the suburbs, um, kind of put all your money in that investment and then sort of do everything you can to make that property value go up. We can think of, um, right, there are examples of shared equity co-ops, Right. Um, there are examples of uh, land trust, community land trust. So I think that the the sort of, in my mind, the policy goal is to kind of decouple all of these things from each other, um, to think about ways that we can help people build wealth that might be outside of home ownership. Right now, we sort of see it as the primary tool for for building wealth in the United States, and it is a good tool, but it doesn't have to be the only one. And then to think of all these sort of attenuate benefits that we get from home ownership and to, to kind of unravel them from that. I remember uh, reading about home ownership, like if you are in a a well-heeled neighborhood that manages to insulate itself, it's a good investment. But I remember hearing that on average, real estate is a poor investment on average like the returns the annual returns are low if you buy the typical home but the typical home might be like a home in york pennsylvania or you know well i i think that my sense is that what your sort of average economist would say is that if you get a standard 30-year mortgage um if you buy it in a decent neighborhood and if you hold on to it for a long time right Right. you're sort of you, the, the way you're making money in the end is by paying regularly paying down your your mortgage loan. Now, some of us right might own in Los Angeles or DC and buy at a time just before kind of housing housing values skyrocket, and so we're making money in two ways, right? By climbing housing prices and by paying like paying down a loan. Um, but that's the sort of caveat I think to all of it, which is that right, it's a, a long term mortgage in a decent neighborhood where property values are at least stable. Um, and held for a long time, and it ends up still being a good so. so what, what I understand, if I understand you correctly, what, so wait, wait, can I push back a little on that though? Can I push? Well, let me let me just jump in. So uh, what I understand, and I, I kind of agree with this, is like let's say that you had a choice between paying two thousand dollars a month in rent and then taking a thousand dollars a month and putting it in an index fund, or paying three thousand dollars for a mortgage. Right. The, and in some mathematical model that some finance economists have published somewhere, they'd say that you could make, a, you know, in the median neighborhood, you could make more money with the index fund. But the problem with that is nobody's going to actually stick to putting that money in the index fund. They're, 
you know, well, sure. there, there, there's going to be a time where it's like you want to go to Disney World or, you know, your kidneys braces or whatever. And so you don't, you know, you, you don't do the investment that one. Whereas the mortgage, you have to do the mortgage. So it's basically a commitment device to force you to save. Well, hold on, though. But there's a very important qualifier in what Brian's yeah. saying and what the that the economists are saying in a decent neighborhood is what he's saying. And that's an important qualifier. Yeah. So, for example, it's my understanding that the one major explanation of uh, black families uh, difficulty accumulating wealth. Yeah, I was thinking that it's, it's a huge explanation for the black white wealth gap. Yes, is that their their uh, mm-hmm. their homes are not appreciating like the economically segregated white neighborhoods. And if you get a genuinely middle class house, like that's a house that's two hundred, three hundred dollars. Like when you talk to a when you talk to economists or professors in general, they are ten percenters, right? And they are purchasing very what they consider decent is in fact very nice. Right, and it's not a it's not a vehicle that would be available to somebody earning forty grand a year who might only have a budget of two hundred thousand. And those are neighborhoods. Uh, a house of two hundred thousand dollars is going to have some downside potential in its housing. Like the, yeah, it could be in the Midwest where the city goes bottom up, or you know. Anyhow, sorry, Brian, go. You know, and and I think also, I mean, the the uh, Gabriel, the the trade off that you made of either three thousand dollars going to home ownership or two thousand dollars going to rent and a thousand dollars in index fund, right? Those aren't sort of comparable housing units, right? A two thousand dollar rental and a three thousand dollar uh, ownership unit. I think right the the way a lot of people would think about it is you have two thousand dollars going to rent or two thousand dollars going to home ownership, and at least right your two thousand dollars going to home ownership, a certain amount of that pays down your principal every year. So in the long run, when you go to right sell your home and pay back the bank, right you owe sort of a lot less money on your mortgage. Well, I I agree that that's true on average, but there's certainly yes you can certainly engineer it that way, right? So I know someone who rents a unit in a condo building. Yeah. All the other neighbors uh, own their condos, or at least most of them do. This person is renting a unit from someone who owns the condo and is paying much less in rent than they would be paying in a mortgage, but they're also not building equity. Right. So mm-hmm. so in that case, they, they versus their neighbor actually are making precisely that calculation. But right. there's... Uh, am I going to pay two thousand for rent and then maybe save a thousand dollars in an index fund, or am I going to pay three thousand dollars and build equity? Right. But I agree with you that in general, when you rent, you're getting an apartment. It's in a denser neighborhood and blah blah blah. But it is possible yeah, to uh, but also- rent a house in a single family uh, neighborhood, or to um, you know sub you know buy a condo. I mean these. It's not a hundred percent correlated. Yeah, but but also there's there's like a very American aspect of this because like I think in part people systematically overpay for their housing because the penalties of living below your means are are larger here in the United States than they are elsewhere. And you realize that I know that this is implicitly oh everything's better in Canada, but you guys have a, a bubble and we don't anymore. Well, it, well, I mean, we'll see how it all plays out. In, yeah, we'll ten see. Year, a ten-year depression. Or you, not. you really think that uh, housing prices in Vancouver are going to keep skyrocketing? Not forever. No. No, I'm talking about in the U.S. I'm sure that there are bubbles. There are bubbles in places in the U.S. today. No, but the my, the main uh, point in the, in the U.S. it's mostly tied to job growth. No, but the the main point is not uh, like the main point that I'm making is because the United States has much less redistribution across local communities, if I, let's say, were an upper middle class person and I wanted to save money uh, on my housing and put that money in an index fund, I would go live in a lower middle class neighborhood. And the penalties for like in terms of my child's school funding or maybe in terms of my infrastructure access, I feel like the penalties are very high in the United States for living below your means. And it gives you much less room to save money on housing. And I think everybody's systematically crowding into neighborhoods that are above their means. Um, well, you're uh, you're kind of approaching the argument that Warren made when she was still an academic with a uh, two-income trap and that sort of thing. I'm a very big fan of hers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, okay, Brian. So, you know, we're here like try asking you to be a policy wizard, um, mm. but you are actually working on a project looking speci- at a specific policy uh, mechanism, namely uh, housing vouchers. So do you want to talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So so I've gone from thinking about policy at the, at the kind of top of the distribution, right, the mortgage interest deduction, to thinking about um, policy at the bottom of the income distribution, right, about um, housing vouchers. So the sort of quick background story, right? Housing vouchers um, 
Section 8 vouchers is what we commonly call them. Uh, if you win a housing voucher, you pay 30% of your income, and then the federal government pays the rest, 30% um, of your income towards rent, and the federal government pays the rest of the rent through a local public housing authority, like the DC Housing Authority or the Housing Authority of the City of Los Angeles or something like that. So what's interesting to me about this is that... Um, uh, housing vouchers are not an entitlement program. Um, in fact, housing vouchers are uh, lotteried off. They're basically um, people have to sign up for a wait list um, and you sign up for a wait list. And when your name gets called, when you get to the top of the wait list, uh, you get your housing voucher. Um, it's a really extraordinary system because there's thousands of public housing authorities in the U.S. Uh, and they all um, distribute their housing vouchers in different ways. So, for example, D.C., the DC Housing Authority had their voucher waitlist open um, for decades, and they closed it a couple years ago. The city has fourteen thousand vouchers. When they closed the waitlist, there were seventy thousand people on it. Um, there was some extraordinary statistic, like the the wait time for a one bedroom apartment with a voucher was going to be twenty eight years. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's it's in some ways an extreme example, but 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 actually not really. I mean, LA had their wait list closed for 13 years. They opened it up in 2017 for two weeks. Um, cities around the country are doing this. So so the next project is actually um, about that system. It's about this kind of system of wait lists and lotteries and how it is um, that local housing authorities make decisions about when to open their wait lists and when to close it. Um, uh, how to select tenants, um, kind of different local preferences that they might have, and what it means for right, what it means for the country, for um, our kind of welfare state, for the social safety net to use to to, to run our housing assistance programs as a lottery rather than um, an entitlement program. I always tell people, like, imagine if um, imagine if Medicaid right was run by a lottery right yeah. you sign up <laughs> period uh, a quarter of you would get it and the other three quarters of you wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> Or food stamps, right? Were run by a lottery, right? You can only sign up uh, when the waitlist opens in five years. If you're lucky enough to get on the list, you might have to wait four or five years before you get your food stamps, right? But it's a really fascinating sort of um, program where we treat essentially equal people, right? Eligible households um, differently based on whether or not you're a winner of the of the lottery. So, um, well, that's it. That's great for research purposes. Oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, it is. That's why he's doing it, Gabriel. Yeah, <laughs> great for research purposes. Uh, it's right. less good for public policy, but it's great for research purposes. Why? Why aren't they just building building housing? Why doesn't the government just build a ton of housing, create like residential subdivisions and yeah. make a train well, there? Well, we. <laughs> you used to be a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, this is like why? Well, first of all. I mean, if it if it eases pressure, like, you know, why can't we have the people's workering housing block? <laughs> well, the government did do that. Uh, you know, they did build big housing. Yeah, and it was such a success. Well, what what specifically failed about it? Like, why is it not viable? And like, what like what couldn't they figure out and had them just give up on things? Well, fundamentally, what happens is it created concentrated poverty. And it became very unpleasant places to live, which is why they switched to Section 8 from right. concentrated housing projects, kind of the Great Society model. Yeah, and I think that that's the, right, that's the big answer is that public housing developments concentrated poverty and disadvantage in right, certain, certain neighborhoods and segregated neighborhoods. But there are in-between models too, right? So there, um, there was a program where right, the, federal, or the, the local housing authorities would lease private units and then sublease them to tenants, right? So, um, so the local government becomes the, the intermediary. They're not building units, but they're, the, they're leasing units. Um, there are ways that we're incentivizing right, private development through like, tax credits like we were right. talking about earlier. Um, so I think that there, I mean, I actually think the, the, the answer is, and this will be the kind of final chapter of my next book, is right, I don't think that you can house... Uh, poor people based on a market solution alone, and we sort of turn this over entirely to the market. That there needs right. to be um, right so, some government intervention in building people for whom uh, the the market will never build housing. Um, but yeah, I mean we're sort of out of the business of of building public housing, and we're actually in the business right of tearing down public housing. Originally, the most distressed public housing through Hope Six, and now right this transformation of the public housing stock through a program called RAD, which is essentially like like privatizing the public housing stock. So um, so that's certainly not the moment that we're at uh, in the U.S. We haven't been there for a while where the government has a sort of real role in building housing. Yeah, or subsidizing it the way they would subsidize middle-class housing with like the same vigor, you know? Right. Yep. 
It does mean I've gotten to travel to uh, uh, like scores of public housing authorities. I think by the time this project is over, I probably will have visited uh, more public housing authorities across the country to do interviews. Uh, That'll be my... What's your take on them? Are they are they very modern and like innovative thinking, or does it feel like an old fashioned utility when you're engaging them? Like, are they thinking about new housing models? And, yeah, you know, yeah, no. Some of them, it's really fascinating. Some there are some very very innovative public housing authorities. There's um there's about forty agencies that have a designation from HUD as moving to work agencies, which basically gives them kind of flexibility to innovate around program rules. Um, mm-hmm. so there's there's a ton of interesting things. Um, kind of happening in, in public housing authorities on the ground. And, you know, they, the, the variation is wide. Some of them are kind of very standard, like running a very standard program. And some of them are thinking really seriously about um, questions of self-sufficiency, about um, increasing the housing stock, about how you spread like scarce resources to help people that are the most at need. So there are a lot of innovative programs around it, but yeah, it varies, you know, place to place. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Brian McCabe of Georgetown University. Brian wrote No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership with Oxford University Press. On the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Laseth Moreno. And a very special welcome to Kanwal Latif, a new member of the Sociocast crew here in Queens, New York. Welcome. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.